Part six of Chance by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part six. Mrs. Fine, seated immovable before the table, charged with plates, cups, jugs, a cold teapot, crumbs, and the general litter of the entertainment, turned her head towards us. You see, Mr. Marlowe, she said in an unexpectedly confidential tone, they are so utterly unsuited for each other. At the moment I did not know how to apply this remark. I thought at first of Fine and the dog. Then I adjusted it to the matter in hand, which was neither more or less than an elopement. Yes, by Jove! It was something very much like an elopement, with certain unusual characteristics of its own which made it in a sense equivocal. With amused wonder I remembered that my sagacity was requisitioned in such a connection. How unexpected! But we never know what tests our gifts may be put to. Sagacity dictated caution first of all. I believe caution to be the first duty of sagacity. Fine sat down as if preparing himself to witness a joust, I thought. "'Do you think so, Mrs. Fine?' I said sagaciously. "'Of course you are in a position.' I was continuing with caution when she struck out vivaciously for immediate assent. "'Obviously, clearly, you yourself must admit.' "'But, Mrs. Fine,' I remonstrated, "'you forget that I don't know your brother.' This argument, which was not only sagacious but true, overwhelmingly true, unanswerably true, seemed to surprise her. I wondered why. I did not know enough of her brother for the remote guess at what he might be like. I had never set eyes on the man. I didn't know him so completely that by contrast I seemed to have known Miss de Barral, whom I had seen twice, altogether about sixty minutes, and with whom I had exchanged about sixty words from the cradle, so to speak and perhaps I thought, looking down at Mrs. Fine, I had remained standing, perhaps she thinks that this ought to be enough for a sagacious assent. She kept silent, and I, looking at her with polite expectation, went on addressing her mentally in a mood of familiar approval which would have astonished her had it been audible. You, my dear, at any rate, are a sincere woman. I call a woman sincere, Marlowe began, again, after giving me a cigar and lighting one himself. I call a woman sincere when she volunteers a statement resembling remotely in form what she really would like to say, what she really thinks ought to be said, if it were not for the necessity to spare the stupid sensitiveness of men. The women's rougher, simpler, more upright judgment embraces the whole truth, which their tact, their mistrust of masculine idealism, ever prevents them from speaking in its entirety. And their tact is unerring. We could not stand women speaking the truth. We could not bear it. It would cause infinite misery and bring about most awful disturbances in this rather mediocre but still idealistic fool's paradise in which each of us lives his own little life, the unit in the great sum of existence. And they know it. They are merciful. This generalization does not apply exactly to Mrs. Fine's outburst of sincerity in a matter in which neither my affections nor my vanity were engaged. That's why, maybe, she ventured so far. For a woman, she chose to be as open as the day with me. There was not only the form, but almost the whole substance of her thought in what she said. She believed she could risk it. She had reasoned somewhat in this way. There's a man possessing a certain amount of sagacity. Marlowe paused with a whimsical look at me. The last few words he had spoken with the cigar in his teeth. He took it out now by an ample movement of his arm, and blew a thin cloud. You smile? 
it would have been more kind to spare my blushes but as a matter of fact i need not blush this is not vanity it is analysis we'll let sagacity stand but we must also note what sagacity in this connection stands for when you see this you shall see also that there was nothing in it to alarm my modesty i don't think mrs fyne credited me with the possession of wisdom tempered by common sense and had i the wisdom of the seven sages of antiquity she would not have been moved to confidence or admiration the secret scorn of women for the capacity to consider judiciously and to express profoundly a meditated conclusion is unbounded they have no use for these lofty exercises which they look upon as a sort of purely masculine game game meaning a respectable occupation devised to kill time in this man-arranged life which must be got through somehow what women's acuteness really respects are the inept ideas and the sheep-like impulses by which our actions and opinions are determined in matters of real importance for if women are not rational they are indeed acute even mrs fyne was acute the good woman was making up to her husband's chess-player simply because she had scented in him that small portion of femininity that drop of superior essence of which i am myself aware which i gratefully acknowledge has saved me from one or two misadventures in my life either ridiculous or lamentable i am not very certain which it matters very little anyhow misadventures observe that i say femininity a privilege not feminism an attitude i am not a feminist it was fine who on certain solemn grounds had adopted that mental attitude but it was also to glance at him sitting on one side to see that he was purely masculine to his fingertips masculine solidly densely amusingly hopelessly i did glance at him you don't get your sagacity recognized by a man's wife without feeling the propriety and even the need to glance at the man now and again so i glanced at him very masculine so much so that hopelessly was not the last word of it he was helpless he was bound and delivered by it and if by the obscure promptings of my composite temperament i beheld him with malicious amusement yet being in fact by definition and especially from profound conviction a man i could not help sympathizing with him largely seeing him thus disarmed so completely captive by the very nature of things i was moved to speak to him kindly well and what do you think of it i don't know how's one to tell but i say that the thing is done now and there's an end of it said the masculine creature as bluntly as his innate solemnity permitted mrs fyne moved a little in her chair i turned to her and remarked gently that this was a charge a criticism which was often made some people always ask what could he see in her others wonder what she could have seen in him expressions of unsuitability she said with all the emphasis of her quietly folded arms i know perfectly well what flora has seen in my brother i bowed my head to the gust but pursued my point and then the marriage in most cases turns out no worse than the average to say the least of it mrs fyne was disappointed by the optimistic turn of my sagacity she rested her eyes on my face as though in doubt whether i had enough femininity in my composition to understand the case i waited for her to speak she seemed to be asking herself is it after all worth while to talk to that man you understand how provoking this was i looked in my mind for something appallingly stupid to say 
with the object of distressing and teasing Mrs. Fyne. It is humiliating to confess a failure. One would think a man of average intelligence could command stupidity at will, but it isn't so. I suppose it's a special gift, or else the difficulty consists in being relevant. Discovering that I could find no really telling stupidity, I turned to the next best thing, a platitude. I advanced, in a common-sense tone, that surely, in the matter of marriage, a man had only himself to please. Mrs. Fine received this without the flutter of an eyelid. Fine's masculine breast, as might have been expected, was pierced by that old regulation shaft. He grunted most feelingly. I turned to him with false simplicity. "'Don't you agree with me?' "'The very thing I've been telling my wife,' he exclaimed in his extra-manly bass. "'We have been discussing a discussion in the fine menage. How portentous! Perhaps the very first difference they had ever had.' Mrs. Fine unflinching and ready for any responsibility, fine, solemn, and shrinking, the children in bed upstairs, and outside the dark fields, the shadowy contours of the land on the starry background of the universe, with the crude light of the open window like a beacon for the truant who would never come back now, a truant no longer, but a downright fugitive, yet a fugitive carrying off spoils. It was the flight of a raider, or a traitor. This affair of the purloined brother, as I had named it to myself, had a very puzzling physiognomy. The girl must have been desperate, I thought, hearing the grave voice of Fine well enough, but catching the sense of his words not at all, except the very last words which were of course it's extremely distressing i looked at him inquisitively what was distressing him the purloining of the son of the poet tyrant by the daughter of the financier convict or only if i may say so the wind of their flight disturbing the solemn placidity of the fine's domestic atmosphere my incertitude did not last long for he added mrs fine urges me to go to London at once. One could guess at, almost see, his profound distaste for the journey, his distress at a difference of feeling with his wife. With his serious view of the sublunary comedy, Fine suffered from not being able to agree solemnly with her sentiment, as he was accustomed to do, in recognition of having had his way in one supreme instance. When he made her elope with him, the most momentous step imaginable in a young lady's life, he had been really trying to acknowledge it by taking the rightness of her feeling for granted on every other occasion. It had become a sort of habit at last, and it is never pleasant to break a habit. The man was deeply troubled, I said, really? To go to London. He looked dumbly into my eyes. It was pathetic and funny. And you, of course, feel it would be useless, I pursued. He evidently felt that, though he said nothing. He only went on blinking at me, with a solemn and comical slowness. Unless it be to carry there the family's blessing, I went on, indulging my chafing humour steadily in a rather sneaking fashion, for I dared not look at Mrs. Fine to my right. No sound or movement came from that direction. You think very naturally that to match mere good, sound reasons against the passionate conclusions of love is a waste of intellect bordering on the absurd. He looked surprised, as if I had discovered something very clever. He dear man, had thought of nothing at all. He simply knew that he did not want to go to London on that mission, mere masculine delicacy. 
in a moment he became enthusiastic <laughs> yes yes exactly a man in love you hear my dear here you have an independent opinion can anything be more hopeless i insisted to the fascinated little fine than to pit reason against love i must confess however that in this case when i think of that poor girl's sharp chin i wonder if my levity was too much for mrs fine still leaning back in her chair she exclaimed mr marlow as if mysteriously affected by her indignation the absurd fine dog began to bark in the porch it might have been at a trespassing bumblebee however that animal was capable of any eccentricity fine got up quickly and went out to him i think he was glad to leave us alone to discuss that matter of his journey to london a sort of anti-sentimental journey he too apparently had confidence in my sagacity it was touching this confidence it was at any rate more genuine than the confidence his wife pretended to have in her husband's chess-player of three successive holidays confidence be hanged sagacity indeed she had simply marched in without a shadow of misgiving to make me back her up but she had delivered herself into my hands interrupting his narrative marlow addressed me in his tone between grim jest and grim earnest perhaps you didn't know that my character is upon the whole rather vindictive no i didn't know i said with a grin that's rather unusual for a sailor they always seem to me the least vindictive body of men in the world hm, simple souls marlow muttered moodily want of opportunity the world leaves them alone for the most part for myself it's towards women that i feel vindictive mostly in my small way i admit that it is small but then the occasions in themselves are not great mainly i resent that pretense of winding us round their dear little fingers as of right not that the result ever amounts to much generally there are so very few momentous opportunities it is the assumption that each of us is a combination of a kid and an imbecile which i find provoking in a small way in a very small way you needn't stare as though i were breathing fire and smoke out of my nostrils i am not a woman-devouring monster i am not even what is technically called a brute i hope there is enough of a kid and an imbecile in me to answer the requirements of some really good woman eventually some day some day why do you gasp you don't suppose i should be afraid of getting married that supposition would be offensive i wouldn't dream of offending you i said very well but meantime please remember that i was not married to mrs fine that lady's little finger was none of my legal property i had not run off with it it was fine who had done that thing let him be wound round as much as his backbone could stand or even more for all i cared his rushing away from the discussion on the transparent pretense of quieting the dog confirmed my notion of there being a considerable strain on his elasticity i confronted mrs fine resolved not to assist her in her eminently feminine occupation of thrusting a stick in the spokes of another woman's wheel she tried to preserve her calm-eyed superiority she was familiar and olympian fenced in by the tea-table that excellent symbol of domestic life in its lighter hour and its perfect security in a few severely unadorned words she gave me to understand that she had ventured to hope for some really helpful suggestions from me to this almost chiding declaration because my vindictiveness seldom goes further than a bit of teasing i said that i was really doing my best and being a physiognomist being what she interrupted me 
a physiognomist i repeated raising my voice a little a physiognomist mrs fyne and on the principles of that science a pointed little chin is a sufficient ground for interference you want to interfere do you not her eyes grew distinctly bigger she had never been bantered before in her life the late subtle poet's method of making himself unpleasant was merely savage and abusive fine had been always solemnly subservient what other men she knew i cannot tell but i assume they must have been gentlemanly creatures the girlfriends sat at her feet how could she recognize my intention she didn't know what to make of my tone are you serious in what you say she asked slowly and it was touching it was as if a very young confiding girl had spoken i felt myself relenting no i am not mrs fyne i said i didn't know i was expected to be serious as well as sagacious no that science is farcical and therefore i am not serious it's true that most sciences are farcical except those which teach us how to put things together the question is how to keep these two people apart she struck in she had recovered i admired the quickness of women's wit mental agility is a rare perfection and aren't they agile aren't they just and tenacious when they once get hold you may uproot the tree but you won't shake them off the branch in fact the more you shake but only look at the charm of contradictory perfections no wonder men give in generally i won't say i was actually charmed by mrs fyne i was not delighted with her what affected me was not what she displayed but something which she could not conceal and that was emotion nothing less the form of her declaration was dry almost peremptory but not its tone her voice faltered just the least bit she smiled faintly and as we were looking straight at each other i observed that her eyes were glistening in a peculiar manner she was distressed and indeed that mrs fyne should have appealed to me at all was in itself the evidence of her profound distress by jove she's desperate too i thought this discovery was followed by a movement of instinctive shrinking from this unreasonable and unmasculine affair they were all alike with their supreme interest aroused only by fighting with each other about some man a lover son a brother but do you think there's time yet to do anything i asked she had an impatient movement of her shoulders without detaching herself from the back of the chair time of course it was less than forty-eight hours since she had followed him to london i am no great clerk at those matters but i murmured vaguely an allusion to special licenses we couldn't tell what might have happened to-day already but she knew better scornfully nothing had happened nothing likely to happen before next friday week if then this was wonderfully precise then after a pause she added that she should never forgive herself if some effort were not made an appeal to your brother i asked yes john ought to go to-morrow nine o'clock train so early as that i said but i could not find it in my heart to pursue this discussion in a jocular tone i submitted to her several obvious arguments dictated apparently by common sense but in reality by my secret compassion mrs fyne brushed them aside with the semi-conscious egoism of all safe established existences they had known each other so little just three weeks and of that time too short for the birth of any serious sentiment the first week had to be deducted they would hardly look at each other to begin with flora barely consented 
to acknowledge Captain Anthony's presence. Good morning, good night, that was all, absolutely the whole extent of their intercourse. Captain Anthony was a silent man, completely unused to the satiety of girls of any sort, and so shy, in fact, that he avoided raising his eyes to her face at the table. It was perfectly absurd. It was even inconvenient, embarrassing to her, Mrs. Fyne. After breakfast, Flora would go off by herself for a long walk, and Captain Anthony, Mrs. Fyne referred to him at times, also as Roderick, joined the children, but he was actually too shy to get on terms with his own nieces. This would have sounded pathetic if I had not known the fine children who were at the same time solemn and malicious, and nursed a secret contempt for the whole world. No one could get on terms with those fresh and comely young monsters. They just tolerated their parents, and seemed to have a sort of mocking understanding among themselves against all outsiders, yet with no visible affection for each other. They had the habit of exchanging derisive glances, which, to a shy man, must have been very trying. They thought their uncle no doubt a bore, and perhaps an ass. I was not surprised to hear that very soon Anthony formed the habit of crossing the two neighboring fields to seek the shade of a clump of elms at a good distance from the cottage. He lay on the grass and smoked his pipe all morning. Mrs. Fyne wondered at her brother's indolent habits. He had asked for books, it is true, but there were but few in the cottage. He read them through in three days, and then continued to lie contentedly on his back with no other companion but his pipe. Amazing indolence! The live-long morning, Mrs. Fyne, busy writing upstairs, in the cottage could see him out of the window. She had a very long sight, and these elms were grouped on the rise of the ground. His indolence was plainly exposed to her criticism on a gentle green slope. Mrs. Fine wondered at it. She was disgusted, too. But having just then commenced author, as you know, she could not tear herself away from the fascinating novelty she let him wallow in his vice. I imagine Captain Anthony must have had a rather pleasant time in a quiet way. It was, I remember, a hot, dry summer, favourable to contemplative life out of doors, and Mrs. Fine was scandalised. Women don't understand the force of a contemplative temperament. It simply shocks them. They feel instinctively that it is the one which escapes best the domination of feminine influences. The dear girls were exchanging jeering remarks about lazy Uncle Roderick openly, in her indulgent hearing. And it was so strange, she told me, because as a boy he was anything but indolent, on the contrary, always active. I remarked that a man of thirty-five was no longer a boy. It was an obvious remark, but she received it without favor. She told me positively that the best, the nicest men remained boys all their lives. She was disappointed not to be able to detect anything boyish in her brother. Very, very sorry. She had not seen him for fifteen years or thereabouts, except on three or four occasions for a few hours at a time. No. Not a trace of the boy he used to be left in him. She fell silent for a moment, and I mused idly on the boyhood of little Fine. I could not imagine what it might have been like. His dominant trait was clearly the remnant of still earlier days, because I've never seen such staring solemnity as Fine's, except in a very young baby. But where was he all that time? Didn't he suffer contamination from the indolence of Captain Anthony? I inquired. I was told that Mr. Fine was very little at the cottage at the time. 
some colleague of his was convalescing after a severe illness in a little seaside village in the neighbourhood and fine went off every morning by train to spend the day with the elderly invalid who had no one to look after him it was a very praiseworthy excuse for neglecting his brother-in-law the son of the poet you know with whom he had nothing in common even in the remotest degree if captain anthony roderick had been a pedestrian it would have been sufficient but he was not still in the afternoon he went sometimes for a slow casual stroll by himself of course the children having definitely cold-shouldered him and his only sister being busy with that inflammatory book which was to blaze upon the world a year or more afterwards it seems however that she was capable of detaching her eyes from her task now and then if only for a moment because it was from that garret fitted out for a study that one afternoon she observed her brother and flora de barral coming down the roadside by side they had met somewhere accidentally which of them crossed the other's path as the saying is i don't know and were returning to tea together she noticed that they appeared to be conversing without constraint i had the simplicity to be pleased mrs fyne commented with a dry little laugh pleased for both their sakes captain anthony shook off his indolence from that day forth and accompanied miss flora frequently on her morning walks mrs fyne remained pleased she could now forget them comfortably and give herself up to the lights of audacious thought and literary composition only a week before the blow fell she happening to raise her eyes from the paper saw two figures seated on the grass under the shade of the elms she could make out the white blouse there could be no mistake i suppose they imagined themselves concealed by the hedge they forgot no doubt i was working in the garret she said bitterly or perhaps they didn't care they were right i am rather a simple person she laughed again i was incapable of suspecting such duplicity duplicity is a strong word mrs fyne isn't it i expostulated and considering that captain anthony himself oh well perhaps she interrupted me her eyes which never strayed away from mine her set features her whole immovable figure how well i knew those appearances of a person who has made up her mind a very hopeless condition that specially in women i mistrusted her concession so easily so stonily made she reflected a moment yes i ought to have said ingratitude perhaps after having thus disengaged her brother and pushed the poor girl a little further off as it were isn't women's cleverness perfectly diabolic when they are really put on their mettle after having done these things and also made me feel that i was no match for her she went on scrupulously one doesn't like to use that word either the claim is very small it's so little one could do for her still i dare say i exclaimed throwing diplomacy to the wind but really mrs fyne it's impossible to dismiss your brother like this out of the business she threw herself at his head mrs fyne uttered firmly he had no business to put his head in the way then i retorted with an angry laugh i didn't restrain myself because her fixed stare seemed to express the purpose to daunt me i was not afraid of her but it occurred to me that i was within an ace of drifting into a downright quarrel with a lady and besides my guest there was the cold teapot the emptied cups emblems of hospitality it could not be i cut short my angry laugh while mrs fyne murmured with a slight 
movement of her shoulders he poor man oh come by a great effort of will i found myself able to smile amiably to speak with proper softness my dear mrs fyne you forget that i don't know him not even by sight it is difficult to imagine a victim as passive as all that but granting you the i very nearly said imbecility but checked myself in time innocence of captain anthony don't you think now frankly that there is a little of your own fault in what has happened you bring them together you leave your brother to himself she sat up and leaning her elbow on the table sustained her head in her open palm casting down her eyes compunction it was indeed a very off-hand way of treating her brother come to stay for the first time in fifteen years i suppose she discovered very soon that she had nothing in common with that sailor that stranger fashioned and marked by the sea of long voyages in her strong-minded way she had scorned pretenses had gone to her writing which interested her immensely a very praiseworthy thing your sincere conduct if it didn't at times resemble brutality so much but i don't think it was compunction that sentiment is rare in women is it i interrupted indignantly you know more women than i do retorted the unabashed marlow you make it your business to know them don't you you go about a lot amongst all sorts of people you are a tolerably honest observer well just try to remember how many instances of compunction you have seen i am ready to take your bare word for it compunction have you ever seen as much as its shadow have you ever just a shadow a passing shadow i tell you it is so rare that you may call it non-existent they are too passionate too pedantic too courageous with themselves perhaps no i don't think for a moment that mrs fyne felt the slightest compunction at her treatment of her sea-going brother what he thought of it who can tell it is possible that he wondered why he had been so insistently urged to come it is possible that he wondered bitterly or contemptuously or humbly and it may be that he was only surprised and bored had he been as sincere in his conduct as his only sister he would have probably taken himself off at the end of the second day but perhaps he was afraid of appearing brutal i am not far removed from the conviction that between the sincerities of his sister and of his dear nieces captain anthony of the ferndale must have had his loneliness brought home to his bosom for the first time of his life at an age thirty-five or thereabouts when one is mature enough to feel the pang of such a discovery angry or simply sad but certainly disillusioned he wanders about and meets the girl one afternoon and under the sway of a strong feeling forgets his shyness this is no supposition it is a fact there was such a meeting in which the shyness must have perished before we don't know what encouragement or in the community of mood made apparent by some casual word you remember that mrs fyne saw them one afternoon coming back to the cottage together don't you think that i have hit on the psychology of the situation doubtless i began to ponder i was very certain of my conclusions at the time marlow went on impatiently but don't think for a moment that mrs fyne in her new attitude and toying thoughtfully with a teaspoon was about to surrender she murmured it's the last thing i should have thought could happen you didn't suppose they were romantic enough i suggested dryly she let it pass and with great decision but as if speaking to herself roderick really must be warned she didn't give me the time to ask of what precisely she raised her head and addressed me i am surprised and grieved more 
than i can tell you at mr fyne's resistance we have been always completely at one on every question and that we should differ now on a point touching my brother so closely is a most painful surprise to me her hand rattled the spoon brusquely in an involuntary movement it is intolerable she added tempestuously for mrs fyne that is i suppose she had nerves of her own like any other woman under the porch where fyne had sought refuge with his dog there was silence i took it for a proof of deep sagacity i don't mean on the part of the dog he was a confirmed fool i said you want absolutely to interfere mrs fyne nodded just perceptibly well for my part but i don't really know how matters stand at the present time you have had a letter from miss de barral what does that letter say she asks for her release to be sent to her town address mrs fyne uttered reluctantly and stopped i waited a bit then exploded well what's the matter where's the difficulty does your husband object to that you don't mean to say that he wants you to appropriate the girl's clothes mr marlow well but you talk of painful difference of opinion with your husband and then when i ask for information on the point you bring out a valise and only a few moments ago you reproached me for not being serious i wonder who is the serious person of us two now she smiled faintly and in a friendly tone from which i concluded at once that she did not mean to show me the girl's letter she said that undoubtedly the letter disclosed an understanding between captain anthony and flora de barral what understanding i pressed her an engagement is an understanding there is no engagement not yet she said decisively that letter mr marlow is couched in very vague terms that is why i interrupted her without ceremony you still hope to interfere to some purpose isn't it so yes but how should you have liked it if anybody had tried to interfere between you and mr fyne at the time when your understanding with each other could still have been described in vague terms she had a genuine movement of astonished indignation it is with the accent of perfect sincerity that she cried out at me but it isn't at all the same thing how can you indeed how could i the daughter of a poet and the daughter of a convict are not comparable in the consequences of their conduct if their necessity may wear at times a similar aspect amongst these consequences i could perceive undesirable cousins for these dear healthy girls and such like possible causes of embarrassment in the future no you can't be serious mrs fyne's smouldering resentment broke out again you haven't thought oh yes mrs fyne i have thought i am still thinking i am even trying to think like you mr marlow she said earnestly believe me that i really am thinking of my brother in all this i assured her that i quite believed she was for there is no law of nature making it impossible to think of more than one person at a time then i said she has told him all about herself of course all about her life assented mrs fyne with an air however of making some mental reservation which i did not pause to investigate her life i repeated that girl must have had a mighty bad time of it horrible mrs fyne admitted with a ready frankness very creditable under the circumstances and a warmth of tone which made me look at her with a friendly eye horrible no you can't imagine the sort of vulgar people she became dependent on you know her father never attempted to see her while he was still at large after his arrest he instructed that relative of his the odious person who took her away from brighton not to let his daughter come to the court during the trial he refused 
to hold any communication with her whatever i remembered that mrs fyne had told me before of the view she had years ago of de barral clinging to the child at the side of his wife's grave and later on of these two walking hand in hand the observed of all eyes by the sea pictures from dickens pregnant with pathos chapter six flora a very singular prohibition remarked mrs fyne after a short silence he seemed to love the child she was puzzled but i surmised that it might have been the sullenness of a man unconscious of guilt and standing at bay to fight his persecutors as he called them or else the fear of a softer emotion weakening his defiant attitude perhaps even it was a self-denying ordinance in order to spare the girl the sight of her father in the dock accused of cheating sentenced as a swindler proving the possession of a certain moral delicacy mrs fyne did not know what to think she supposed it might have been mere callousness but the people amongst whom the girl had fallen had positively not a grain of moral delicacy of that she was certain mrs fyne could not undertake to give me an idea of their abominable vulgarity flora used to tell her something of her life in that household over there down limehouse way it was incredible it passed mrs fyne's comprehension it was a sort of moral savagery which she could not have thought possible i on the contrary thought it very possible i could imagine easily how the poor girl must have been bewildered and hurt at her reception in that household envied for her past while delivered defenceless to the tender mercies of people without any fineness either of feeling or mind unable to understand her misery grossly curious mistaking her manner for disdain her silent shrinking for pride the wife of the odious person was witless and fatuously conceited of the two girls of the house one was pious and the other a romp both were coarse-minded if they may be credited with any mind at all the rather numerous men of the family were dense and grumpy or dense and jocose none in that grubbing lot had enough humanity to leave her alone at first she was made much of in an offensively patronizing manner the connection with the great de barral gratified their vanity even in the moment of the smash they dragged her to their place of worship whatever it might have been where the congregation stared at her and they gave parties to other beings like themselves at which they exhibited her with ignoble self-satisfaction she did not know how to defend herself from their importunities insolence and exigencies she lived amongst them a passive victim quivering in every nerve as if she were flayed after the trial her position became still worse on the least occasion and even on no occasions at all she was scolded or else taunted with her dependence the pious girl lectured her on her defects the romping girl teased her with contemptuous references to her accomplishments and was always trying to pick insensate quarrels with her about some fellow or other the mother backed up her girls invariably adding her own silly wounding remarks i may say they were probably not aware of the ugliness of their conduct they were nasty among themselves as a matter of course their disputes were nauseating in origin in manner in the spirit of mean selfishness these women too seemed to enjoy greatly any sort of row and were always ready to combine together to make awful scenes to the luckless girl on incredibly flimsy pretenses thus flora on one occasion had been reduced to rage and despair 
had her most secret feelings lacerated had obtained a view of the utmost baseness to which common human nature can descend i won't say apropos de bottes as the french would excellently put it but literally apropos of some mislaid cheap lace trimmings for a nightgown the romping one was making for herself yes that was the origin of one of the grossest scenes which in their repetition must have had a deplorable effect on the unformed character of the most pitiful of de barral's victims i have it from mrs fyne the girl turned up at the fynes's house at half-past nine on a cold drizzly evening she had walked bareheaded i believe just as she ran out of the house from somewhere in poplar to the neighbourhood of sloane square without stopping without drawing breath if only for a sob we were having some people to dinner said the anxious sister of captain anthony she had heard the front door bell and wondered what it might mean the parlour-maid managed to whisper to her without attracting attention the servants had been frightened by the invasion of that wild girl in a muddy skirt and with wisps of damp hair sticking to her pale cheeks but they had seen her before this was not the first occasion nor yet the last directly she could slip away from her guests mrs fyne ran upstairs i found her in the night nursery crouching on the floor her head resting on the cot of the youngest of my girls the eldest was sitting up in bed looking at her across the room only a night light was burning there mrs fyne raised her up took her over to mr fyne's little dressing-room on the other side of the landing to a fire by which she could dry herself and left her there she had to go back to her guests a most disagreeable surprise it must have been to the fynes afterwards they both went up and interviewed the girl she jumped up at their entrance she had shaken her damp hair loose her eyes were dry with the heat of rage i can imagine little fyne solemnly sympathetic solemnly listening solemnly retreating to the marital bedroom mrs fyne pacified the girl and fortunately there was a bed which could be made up for her in the dressing-room but what could one do after all concluded mrs fyne and this stereotyped exclamation expressing the difficulty of the problem and the readiness at any rate of good intentions made me as usual feel more kindly towards her next morning very early long before fyne had to start for his office the odious personage turned up not exactly unexpected perhaps but startling all the same if only by the promptness of his action from what flora herself related to mrs fyne it seemed that without being very perceptibly less odious than his family he had in a rather mysterious fashion interposed his authority for the protection of the girl not that he cares explained flora i am sure he does not i could not stand being liked by any of these people if i thought he liked me i would drown myself rather than go back with him for of course he had come to take florrie home the scene was the dining-room breakfast interrupted dishes growing cold little fine's toast growing leathery fine out of his chair with his back to the fire newspaper on the carpet servants shut out mrs fine rigid in her place with the girl sitting beside her the odious person who had bustled in with hardly a greeting looking from fine to mrs fine as though he were inwardly amused at something he knew of them and then beginning ironically his discourse he did not apologize for disturbing fine and his good lady at breakfast because he knew they did not want with a nod at the girl to have more of her than could be helped 
he came the first possible moment because he had his business to attend to he wasn't drawing a tip-top salary this staring at fine in a luxuriously furnished office not he he had risen to be an employer of labor and was bound to give a good example i believe the fellow was aware of and enjoyed quietly the consternation his presence brought to the bosom of mr and mrs fine he turned briskly to the girl mrs fine confessed to me that they had remained all three silent and inanimate what's this game florrie you had better give it up if you expect me to run all over london looking for you every time you happen to have a tiff with your auntie and cousins you are mistaken i can't afford it tiff was the sort of definition to take one's breath away having regard to the fact that both the word convict and the word pauper had been used a moment before flora de barral ran away from the quarrel about the lace trimmings yes these very words so at least the girl had told mrs fine the evening before the word tiff in connection with her tale had a peculiar savour a paralyzing effect nobody made a sound the relative of de barral proceeded uninterrupted to a display of magnanimity and he told me to tell you she's sorry there and amelia the romping sister shan't worry you again i'll see to that you ought to be satisfied remember your position emboldened by the utter stillness pervading the room he addressed himself to mrs fyne with stolid effrontery what i say is that people should be good-natured she can't stand being chafed she puts on her grand airs she won't take a bit of a joke from people as good as herself anyway we are a plain lot we don't like it and that's how trouble begins insensible to the stony stare of three pairs of eyes which if the stories of our childhood as to the power of the human eye are true ought to have been enough to daunt a tiger that unabashed manufacturer from the east end fastened his fangs figuratively speaking into the poor girl and prepared to drag her away for a prey to his cubs of both sexes auntie has thought of sending you your hat and coat i got them outside in the cab mrs fyne looked mechanically out of the window a four-wheeler stood before the gate under the weeping sky the driver in his conical cape and tarpaulin hat streamed with water the drooping horse looked as though it had been fished out half unconscious from a pond mrs fyne found some relief in looking at that miserable sight away from the room in which the voice of the amiable visitor resounded with a vulgar intonation exhorting the strayed sheep to return to the delightful fold come florrie make a move i can't wait on you all day here mrs fyne heard all this without turning her head away from the window fyne on the hearth-rug had to listen and to look on too i shall not try to form a surmise as to the real nature of the suspense their very goodness must have made it very anxious the girl's hands were lying in her lap her head was lowered as if in deep thought and the other went on delivering a sort of homily ingratitude was condemned in it the sinfulness of pride was pointed out together with the proverbial fact that it goes before a fall there were also some sound remarks as to the danger of nonsensical notions and the disadvantages of a quick temper it sets one's best friends against one and if anybody ever wanted friends in the world it's you my girl every respect for parental authority was invoked in the first hour of his trouble your father wrote to me to take care of you don't forget it yes to me just a plain man rather than to any of his fine west end friends 
you can't get over that and a father's a father no matter what a mess he's got himself into you ain't going to throw over your own father are you end of part six